Violinist Giuseppe Tartini, composer of the famous Devil's Trill Sonata, recounted this experience. One night in the year 1713, I dreamed I had made a pact with the devil for my soul. Everything went as I wished. My new servant anticipated my every desire. Among other things, I gave him my violin to see if he could play. How great was my astonishment on hearing a sonata so wonderful and so beautiful, played with such great art and intelligence as I had never even conceived in my boldest flights of fantasy. I felt enraptured, transported, enchanted. My breath failed me, and I awoke. I immediately grasped my violin in order to retain, in part at least, the impression of my dream. In vain. The music which I at this moment composed is indeed the best that I ever wrote, and I still call it the devil's trill. But the difference between it and that which so moved me is so great that it would have destroyed my instrument and have said farewell to music forever if it had been possible for me to live without the enjoyment it affords me. The devil seems to have a strange pension for violinists. Charlie Daniels regaled the musical world with a story of Johnny's fiddling duel with the devil, and the acclaimed violinist Niccolò Paganini, widely celebrated as the best violin virtuoso of his day, was so incredible and played with such skill that it was, and sometimes still is, assumed that Paganini obtained his musical prowess by selling his soul to the devil. Yet, some two millennia ago, it was asked, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? And what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Mind you, these two questions have the same answer. Good morrow, everybody, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. I'm your host, Ben Laboot, and today's episode is called Don't Sell Yourself Short. In 2013, the British Parliament updated the rules that govern how the crown transfers from one head to another, most notably by striking the rule of male primogeniture, and replacing it with primogeniture, no qualifier of male or female. So what is this strange word? Primus is the Latin word for first, and genitura for begetting or birth. Therefore, primogenitor means firstborn. The rule of primogenitor, or rather its provenience male primogenitor, is that the firstborn male inherits the crown. Unless, of course, he is Catholic or otherwise considered naturally dead. And this precedent long predates the 1701 UK legislation that made it the law of the land for Great Britain. Specifically, I'm thinking about some 4,000 years ago, when Abraham begat Isaac, who begat Jacob, who begat 12 sons and one daughter. But if we back up a moment, Abraham had two sons. Isaac was actually the second born, but it was Isaac who succeeded Abraham as the family patriarch. What about the older brother? Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn. But Ishmael was an illegitimate child, born of Sarah's handmaid Hagar. 
And just as a bastard does not inherit the British crown, neither did Ishmael inherit the family of God's chosen people. Isaac, the legitimate son of Abraham and Sarah, did. And as you hear me say frequently here on Stories of Symmetry, it goes Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. But did you know that, just like Abraham, his father before him, Isaac also had two sons? And just like Isaac was the secondborn, so too was Jacob, the secondborn of Isaac. So again we ask, what about the older brother? In the case of Isaac and his older brother Ishmael, Ishmael was illegitimate. But for the case of Jacob and his older brother Esau, both sons were true-born heirs. Therefore, the position of family patriarch should have gone to Esau, and yet it went instead to Jacob. It is the birthright of the firstborn to inherit the family. And yet why does the lineage not go Abraham, Isaac, Esau? It is not because Esau died without children. It is because Esau sold his birthright. He sold his inheritance as firstborn. But the real tragedy is not that Esau sold his birthright. The real tragedy is how he sold himself short. He sold himself for something that was very nearly worthless. Esau did not sell his soul to gain the whole world, and he did not sell it to become the world's greatest violinist. Esau sold his birthright for a cup of soup. This is the story. One day Jacob was cooking stew, and Esau came in from the field absolutely exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, Let me have some of that red stew. I'm absolutely famished. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright, here, right now. Esau said, I am very nearly about to die. My birthright is of no use to me. And Jacob pressed him, Swear to me now. So Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and the lentil stew he was cooking, and Esau ate and drank and went on his way. Thus it was that Esau despised his birthright. What is the most important thing in your life? What is the most valuable thing you own? Imagine selling your house for a post-workout smoothie. Imagine pawning your great-grandmother's golden pendant for a mere bowl of brown. Imagine coming in from the field and selling your grandfather's pocket knife for a glass of lemonade. But now take it a step further, and the thing that you are getting rid of is not something you spent a long time saving up for, not even a family heirloom, but a gift directly from the God of the universe. When the maker of heaven and earth blesses you with something, and declares that it will be yours and your descendants for all time, then you do not take that thing lightly. You don't forget about it just because you've been out in the sun all day. You hold fast to God's gift, and cherish it, and place it incomparably higher than everything else in your life. Esau's birthright was to lead and guide the family that God, yes, the Holy One, declared would be the hope of all nations, and one day unite the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of man. Restore the paradise and perfection that comes when people and God are in relationship. That was Esau's inheritance. And yet, laboring in the field, a little bit of sultry moiling, that was all it took to make him forget about the value of his inheritance, and readily sell it 
for nothing more than a bowl of lentil stew. This is why the writer to the Hebrews said that Esau was unholy because he sold his birthright for a single meal. And the original Genesis account itself said, thus Esau despised his birthright. Despise is a powerful word. You think about what little regard Esau must have had for his entitlements as firstborn. He must have held them in little esteem, or else he would have clung to that birthright until his death. When Jacob said, sell me your birthright, Esau should have said, I will give you the very clothes on my back. My tent is yours. My labors in the field are yours. My sheep, my cheese, my silver, my spices, take it all. But my inheritance is God's gift to me. And there's nothing on the earth, or under the earth, or swimming in the ocean, or soaring through the welkin that can compare to it. And yet, Esau did not say that or any similar word. Rather, he said, What good is my birthright to me when I'm so very tired and hungry? Take it, and give me some soup instead. Thus it was that Esau despised his birthright. And that is why the stories of this event and the traditions around them hold Esau in such low esteem. Not only did Esau sell something so valuable that it never should have been sold, but he sold it for something nearly worthless. He sold himself short. Now, the temptation is to believe that we ourselves don't do that. After all, not many of us have explicit sacred charges from the divine, nor does primogeniture govern the average family. Yet how easily is it to sell out because of momentary distress? One month's rent or one looming car payment is all it takes to forfeit one's hoped-for career, one's dreams, one's passion and longing for a better future, and remain in a situation that is jading and draining. Or consider how the masses readily give away their liberties when confronted by momentary crisis, to which American statesman Benjamin Franklin admonished, those who would give up essential liberty, purchase a little temporary safety, deserve neither liberty nor safety. It's the same idea that whoever would give up their God-given inheritance for a cup of stew deserves neither the inheritance nor the stew, because that person is loathsome and undignified. There is a deep instinctual antipathy toward that type of spinelessness. It's like seeing the hero in the story give up when the going gets tough. That's when he or she is supposed to rise up and overcome. It's watching your favorite team be down just one point with only 90 seconds remaining. And you see the team's best hope for victory, the star athlete, step off the field because, well, it's been a long game and he's put in a solid effort and just needs a break. No, don't sit down. Get back in there and push till the very last second. In the army, they say that pain is temporary, but glory is forever. The encouragement is to not give up just because it is difficult right this moment. A lot has led up to now, and there's a lot of existence that will follow after. So don't let a moment of human weakness waste the past and ruin the future. Or in the words of the great Winston Churchill, This is the lesson. Never give in. 
never give in. Never, 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 in nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. The Bible abounds with encouragement to strive and not give up. For example, Paul said, present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed one day. And later on to Timothy, he declared, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. By this confession, Paul was saying that he didn't sell out. He didn't give up when the going got tough. During every difficult encounter, when it would have been easier to deny his faith, Paul took the more challenging road of keeping it. The beatings, the accusations, the peripatia, the twisting of his words, the years spent in jail, the countless nights of hunger and exposure, these were not enough to make him forget his God. Why is that? What gave him the endurance, the perseverance? Perhaps it was because his God did not forget about him. The Christian understanding is that the death of Jesus was not just another execution. It was an exchange, a purchase, a subrogation, one perfect life to buy all of us with abjectly imperfect lives, one godly human to redeem the ungodly rest of humanity. We are encouraged to give our all to God, but this is not given as a command with punishment for disobedience, nor intended as a service to God or quid pro quo in exchange for Christ's gift. Rather, we are encouraged to give our all to God because it is the only sensible response of those who truly believe that God has given us something worth sharing. Think for a moment about the recipient of a heart transplant. It oughtn't to be that the vivified recipient squander the gift and act like no extraordinary thing happened. It is non-sequitur to see the recipient of a heart transplant take life for granted, as if it were some commonplace thing, that the very heart beating in the breast does not add satitious and a gift, one life for another. But how much more so is such feeling intensified if that organ came not from the victim of a fatal accident, but from a young, healthy individual with many more years to live and life to hold? Not that someone else lost their life, and you somehow could find a benefit from that loss, but that someone willingly looked at you and held your life as no small thing, but as something worth dying for. This is not receiving a heart transplant. Rather, you were stuck in a burning car, and someone else came and rescued you and died in doing so. But it wasn't just anyone. You were a wretched, contemptible oaf, whereas the person who saved you, who willingly sacrificed himself in exchange for you, was a wholesome, kind and generous prodigy, destined to bring great things to humanity. Just like the heart transplant cannot, in good conscience, scorn the new life that could only come because another life ended, even more so cannot we, in good faith, scorn the new life that was purchased for us at such a dear cost no less than the blood of holy God. 
Because if we truly believe that the death of Jesus not only benefited us, but that the Holy One himself endured death specifically so that he could trade his life for yours, then the only reasonable response is to praise God. Keeping in mind that our lives, yours and mine, are so very precious, not because of something we did, but because of the great price paid for us, let us now consider two questions that Jesus asked of his disciples. Jesus asked them, what shall someone give in exchange for his or her soul? This is to ask, knowing the value of your life, and indeed you yourself might value your life highly, and yet you yourself might consider it quite worthless and place little to no value to your life. But you must consider not what you would pay for yourself, but what God did pay for you. And knowing that value of your life or of your soul, what shall you give in exchange for it? For example, if you sell your soul for a violin and then you decide to return the devil his instrument, what do you offer? What is there that is worth your soul? What do you have to offer in exchange? Or suppose that I possess all the treasures in the Tower of London, and then I foolishly sell them for a shepherd's pie, and then the next day, appetite sated, I bake a fine shepherd's pie and attempt to make an exchange with the buyer to regain my lost crown jewels. Woe is me, for a shepherd's pie no matter how delicious, cannot purchase back even a single crown of the Tower of London, just like a violin cannot purchase back your soul once it has been sold. Therefore, the answer to the question, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul, is nothing. He can give nothing. He can give nothing because nothing but God's own blood is worth his soul, for that is the price that was paid for it. Prior to asking that question, Jesus asked another, What is the true gain if a person acquires the world and everything in it, but loses his soul, his life, in doing so? Valuing your life again as the Almighty One appraises it, when your life or soul is juxtaposed to even the world and the fullness thereof all those riches begin to fade. The bronze is overcome with patina, shining gems matte cloudy, delectations lose their flavor, and the earth itself seems minute and infinitely smaller when compared to your own life. Now, of course, this evaluation is laughable through the lenses of our eyes, but we must consider looking at it the way God does, as Jesus tried to make us realize when he asked the questions. Though I strongly doubt that anyone has been offered the whole world in exchange for his or her soul, we don't seem to even need that. How often do we accept much smaller prizes? How many souls are sold each day, I wonder, by people who misjudge what it means to conduct one's business honestly, or to take advantage of vulnerable, helpless people? For how many people is a corner office, or some fine worldly trinkets, enough to warrant sacrificing friends? fellow employees, the next generation of humans on this planet. Life 
liberty and happiness too, and adding to the corrosion of this world around us, all for a moment of status or some fleeting luxury. It takes little effort to diatribe about the ways in which people sell their decency and humanity to sate their unholy appetites. But God forbid we believe that only rich or powerful people make such choices, and that not each and every one of us, from every imaginable demographic subset, on a near-daily basis, are faced with a dilemma to maintain our soul or sell it for a moment of popularity, acceptance, revenge, curiosity, or even rest at the end of a long day. But what is gained when you come into that satisfying thing but lose your humanity in the process? Again, we can assert that the answer is nothing. Now, you've no doubt noticed how I go back and forth between the idea of selling one's soul and one's life. The Greek word used to record both questions of Jesus, in both Matthew 16 and Mark 8, is suhe. It means either soul or life. In the Greek psyche, with notions of forms and such, your true self is a soul, removed from the body. But the Jews from which Jesus hailed had no notion of soul. Your essence, whatever that means, was inextricably linked to your physical body. And finally, Christianity, which unified the Jewish and Greco-Roman worlds to a single unified Western world, blends many such formerly distinct philosophies. So, in the end, who's to say whether soul or life is preferable? Regardless, whereas we generally use the word soul in English as an abstract concept, I believe that Jesus, at least in part, intended us to understand Suhei literally. Not that we can literally sell our soul, as if we pass it across the counter and are handed a violin and our receipt. And not to say that the very understanding of this soul thing isn't complicated at best. And if we think of our life, few to none of us have sold that either, as in quite literally and willingly submitting ourselves to unalloyed servitude, serfdom, thraldom, slavery. Therefore, for most people in most parts of the world, our soul or life-selling is indeed metaphorical and more often concerns ethical matters than life-or-death ones. However, for the original disciples, to whom Jesus first posed the questions, these probes did not target matters of political control, societal exploitation, high versus low roads, or other such problems of the world. Rather, their primary concern was about selling their souls merely to stay in the world. As we remember from discussing Stephen and the other martyrs two weeks ago, it was not long after Jesus asked these questions that the disciples were hunted down and killed. Indeed, in the coming years, ten were murdered of the twelve gathered there around Jesus as he asked them, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And I tell you that the answer to both these questions is nothing. The disciples truly faced not a metaphorical or philosophical decision, but a visceral, gut-punch decision to deny Jesus or be stripped naked nailed to a cross along the roadside and left to die of thirst and exhaustion. So, what Jesus told them was, 
Don't sell yourself short. Don't deny your God in exchange for safety. Don't claim that the blood of Jesus did not purchase your soul. Don't utter these lies just to avoid pain and humiliation. You are worth so much more than that. Don't sell yourself short. Don't be like Esau who sold his God-given birthright to quench his thirst and fill his belly. Rather, be like Paul, who understood that the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed one day. The writer to the Hebrews said, Esau sold his birthright for a single meal, and you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Unhappy, unfortunate Esau, who really did lose it all in a moment of weakness. That was it for him. No second chance. But for us, it is different. We are not Esau, the almost patriarch, living under God's original covenant. We, if we choose to, live under God's new covenant, which is characterized by things like grace, forgiveness, second chances, and hope for the future. Take heart, then, that if you do miss the mark, if God calls you to powerful witness, yet your courage fails. That wasn't it. That wasn't the last call. That wasn't your one make-or-break moment. God redeems us as frequently as we need it, not as an encouragement to fall short or abuse grace, but as loving parents provide safety nets for their children. Because we are only human. We are very nearly destined to come in from the heat and offer our soul for a bowl of lentils. But with God's help, we will overcome it. Even still, we need to strengthen our constitutions. Think about how the early disciples fled when Jesus was arrested. Think about how Peter returned to his life as a fisherman even after the resurrection. He did not begin his journey as the paragon Christian and paladin of faith. Before he became the leader of the church, there was an evening when Peter was pointed out as a companion of Jesus three times, and three times he vehemently denied the claim. He traded his loyalty for a moment of safety. He sold himself short. But there is redemption for us, just as there was for Peter. If you have never denied your God, then take heart. Have courage. Stand strong not to. And even if faced with an insurmountable foe, don't let the moment overwhelm and break you. If you have never sold your humanity or integrity to gain an advantage in the world, then don't. Don't give in. Don't sell your soul to get by. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? Nothing. And what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. But know that while there is nothing you can give, God already has purchased your soul. If you try to sell it thereafter, then know that God redeems you. Such is the nature of the grace of God, that there is nothing you can do to remove yourself from it, except, except for one thing, 
not wanting it. If you don't want God, then nothing is forced upon you. But if you accept God's grace as a gift, then it is yours and you cannot exhaust its limit, no matter how many times you sell yourself short. My final encouragement to you is this. If you have missed the mark previously, if you have sold yourself short at one moment of weakness, or perhaps even constantly, then again I say, take heart. Move forward as Peter did. Put the past in the past as Paul did. God redeems you if, and so you do not have to, sell yourself short. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry. My name is Ben Laboot, and I hope that today's episode challenges you and helps bring you closer to God. We hope that these words reach everyone who would find them meaningful, and you are the best person to make that happen. If you find value in this podcast, then please share it with the people you know. If you are looking for even more ways to help, then follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Stories of Symmetry, and visit storiesofsymmetry.com to hear episodes, read blogs, drop a donation, and more. Have a great day, and remember that the next episode will be out in two weeks. Go with God, go in peace.